0: How to read and study your Bible. Um, That's what we're going to go over today. So, after two weeks of understanding a little bit of history and theology, um, today we're going to try to dig deep in the practicalities of reading uh, your Bible. And I'm just going to dive right in and explain that there are what you might call three different gears. Of Bible reading. Uh, how, how many people here ride a bike to work or for pleasure? Um, so you all understand the way gears work. Hopefully all of you can use your imagination. Uh, different bike gears let you go uh, at different speeds, also enable you or require a different degree of labor. So there are three different gears of Bible reading. If you could use your work uh, books Um, to fill in different blanks and answers to follow along, or if you don't have one, you can just uh, listen along. Uh, But the first gear of Bible reading is just reading. And what I mean by that is that the length that you're looking at each time you sit down is greater than one chapter. And the idea there is that you're just opening the Bible and reading it like a book. You're just reading it uh, to get a bigger picture of the flow of the story or the flow of the argument of a letter where you are sitting almost like as in an armchair and enjoying the story. Uh, Sometimes we actually need to do more of this kind of reading, Uh, longer stretches of time, longer segments of scripture. So the first gear is that of reading. The second gear we might call studying. So this is a little bit more in depth, so rather than two, three, four chapters at a time, here we're talking about the length of one paragraph, uh, one unit, maybe one chapter, a smaller unit, and the idea here is that you're diving in and looking at the Bible in more detail and in more depth. So you're limiting the, the scope of what you're studying or reading, and you're going not for breadth, but rather for depth. The third gear you might call meditating. So as you can tell, we're funneling down to something more and more intensive or focused. This one is not a a whole chapter or several chapters. Uh, This is not just one paragraph, but rather you're just chewing on one verse or one part of a verse. Uh, This is uh, us soaking in some specific aspect of God's word and pouring it over in our heart, turning it over in our heart. This is what you might call meditation. This is most commonly associated with what people call a quiet time or a personal devotions time. We're not going to cover how to do a personal devotional time or quiet time in our time tonight, but you will find in your appendix, in your handout, a quick guide as to a quick practical outline on how you might spend a personal daily time with God in the Word and in prayer. So we won't be covering meditating, but what we will be talking about today will cover basically the first two gears, but primarily the second gear. How do you do more in-depth, more detailed study of a paragraph or two in the Bible? Now, the reason why we even need to talk about this, the reason why we even need to Think through and learn what are principles of interpretation. How do you study the Bible? What's a good way to do that is because it's a challenge. How many of you have found the Bible hard to read from time to time? Raise your hands. Yes, let's admit it. It is difficult. And one of the reasons why it's difficult, or rather the main reason why it's difficult, can be explained as follows. The Bibles that we have, which we read in English, as you may or may not know, are actually translations of ancient texts that were originally written in other languages such as ancient Hebrew, which isn't even the same as modern Hebrew, or ancient Aramaic, which doesn't even really exist anymore, and Koine Greek, which is not even a modern version of Greek nor the classical version of Greek, but rather a a strange dialect that was used just in the first century period when the Bible was written. So one of the challenges we have is that the Bibles we are reading are not in the original languages that the first manuscripts were written in, they are merely translations. And then on top of that, those Bibles were written about people that lived a long time ago, in different cultures that we are not familiar with, in cities that may or may not exist any longer, surrounded by customs and practices that we may or may not really understand the significance of. And here we are in our present context with a totally different mindset, worldview, dress, eating habits, culture, customs, right? All the hipsters in D.C., right? And this is really the challenge. How do we read a Bible that is actually grounded in an ancient reality that's given to us in an English text that itself is translated. How do we do this? This is what makes Bible reading difficult. In other words, on the right side here, where we live is what you might call the here and now. Uh, Right here in this particular place in Washington DC and right now, in 2018. But the Bible was originally written then and there, 2,000 years ago, or 3,500 years ago, in the case of the oldest parts of the Old Testament, and there, across oceans in different cultures, many of which don't even exist any longer. And the entirety of the challenge of biblical interpretation is moving from then and there, to here and now. The challenge that we have is to take our English text and in the way that we read and study the Bible that we are seeking to go back to what that Bible is referring to and what was said then and there in order that we might be able to apply and understand it in our present context here and now. This is a process that technical people, theologians and others, will call exegesis. Class, say exegesis. Exegesis. Oh, you're weak. Exegesis, let's hear it. Exegesis. Exegesis is a word that can be broken up into two two different parts. Exa, or ek, comes from the Greek, prefix or preposition, which means out of or out from, and Jesus is the son of God. No, um, it's an old Greek word that means to guide or to seek. Exegesis means we are taking what's in the Bible and what's in the then and there, and we are taking it out of the Bible and trying to understand it on its own terms. Exegesis means you are starting on the left and moving to the right. You are starting in the ancient and moving to the modern. You are starting in the then and there and then moving to the here and now. Eisegesis on the other hand, ice is the Greek preposition for in or into, Eisegesis would mean reading into the text or bringing the here and now into the then and there, importing your mindset, your cultural customs, meanings of modern words, and assuming that that's what it meant to them, the original audience and the original authors, then and there. Eisegesis moves in the opposite direction, the wrong direction, exegesis is what we are aiming for. By the way, if you ever want to irritate your preachers after uh, they give a sermon, you can come up to them and say, hey, where did you get that point anyway? That was nice eisegesis, right? Uh, a, a way for you to uh, generally accuse them of just bringing in their own opinions or views or a modern context into scripture. Exegesis is our challenge. So just as an overview of the method that we're gonna look at, we are, again, moving from the then and there. What did this text, this paragraph, this word, this chapter, this book, this Bible mean, then and there, and then moving over to our present context, here and now, what it means for the modern reader. And this is just the basic model that you may or may not be familiar with. It's a rough outline, and we're going to fill in the details there, where we're moving from Scripture in three different stages or steps, observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, which starts with looking at the actual text of scripture, interpretation, putting the pieces together, then application, finally seeing how it touches real present life, personal life for you and for me. So this is the outline that we're gonna take for the remainder of our time, observation, interpretation, and application, But I just want to repeat myself one more time. The basic movement of proper interpretation of the Bible is from then and there to here and now. And that's one of the hardest things in the world for us to do. Just to give you a quick summary of what each of these mean, observation, interpretation, application, let's just run through this quickly. So I'm on page four now of your uh, worksheets or workbooks. First of all, observation, What's the aim? What's the goal of this stage, this step? Observation. The goal is this gathering the facts. Looking at the text of Scripture, you're gathering the facts. You're just laying it out on the table. You're gathering the data, whatever is explicitly in the text. Right? You're not looking for what's underneath it. You're not looking around it. You're not trying to decode it yet. We're going to get to some of that in interpretation. We're just looking at whatever is explicitly or obviously in the text, that's observation. The key question that we're asking when we're in this phase of interpretation is simply, what does the passage say? Not what does it mean, not how does it apply to my life, and most certainly not what does it mean to me, not the first step, what would what does it mean to me yield if you were to ask that question in the very beginning? Speak up. I said, Jesus, give him a gold star, right? Starting with yourself and bringing yourself to the text rather than the other way around. The key question is, what does the passage say? That's observation. Interpretation has a different aim. You haven't gathered the facts. Now you are looking to connect the facts. Uh, Connect the facts. Understanding the main point or themes of the passage. This is interpretation. The key question there is what does the passage mean? Observation is, what does a passage say? Sorry, page eight. So I'm just doing a quick overview of each of these steps. So page eight there at the top, connecting the facts, understanding the main point or themes of the passage. And the key question for this step of interpretation is what does the passage mean? And thirdly, lastly, Again, just by way of overview, just a quick summary, application on page 11, if you'll turn there, means this, what's the goal, what's the aim there? Having gathered the facts, laid them on the table, having now connected the facts and started to gain some meaning, application is responding to the passage, benefiting from it personally. Now, it is about you. In the beginning, it was not about you. Now it is about you. In other words, the key question to application is how does the passage relate to me? Or corporately, how does the passage relate to us? All right? Observation, interpretation, application. Let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's look at observation first. Observation. So go back to pages at four. Let's look at. Uh, this segment here. Again, observation, the aim is gathering the facts, whatever is explicitly in the text. The key question is, what does a passage say? Let's talk about some general principles. How do you do observation? Number one, read the book, read the Bible, read the Bible like any other book. Number one, read the Bible like any other book. A New Testament scholar once said this, Scripture is to be read and understood not as an esoteric work, not as as a strange literary work, but rather in its plain sense, in its plain sense. In other words, when you first start reading this passage or this chapter or this book of the Bible, just read it like an ordinary book. Look first for the clear teaching of Scripture, not some hidden meaning. In other words, it's not a fortune cookie, right? Where you're just extracting one verse or one idea and you're just, hey, give me a hit, you know, come on, give me some wisdom, give me some hope, you know, look around, happiness is trying to catch you. There it is, right? The Holy Spirit, it's like, no, that's not the happy, that's not happiness, that's the meter maid trying to get you, I don't know, right? Sometimes we approach the Bible like a fortune cookie. Uh, Ripping verses and phrases totally out of context. And essentially, therefore, creating meaning that we want to see in that verse or passage, which may or may not be true, but may not be what that verse or that sentence or that phrase actually means. The Bible is not a fortune cookie. The Bible is not a Bible of hidden Messages You may see these at the grocery checkout aisle all the time. And this is actually not just this farcical thing. This is actually a a, a movement. So you may or may not know, people spend uh, their whole lives trying to decode the Bible. So, for example, you take the original Hebrew text. Sometimes they do it in English. They line it up, and they just start to put together the different combinations of words. And this one here, they they found it. The twin... Towers, terror attack, bin Laden murders thousands of people, and literally they put the characters of the Hebrew text, in this case, together to apparently decode the Bible's ability to prophesy 9-11. We just missed it, because apparently we're reading the Bible wrongly. No, the Bible is not something to be decoded. The Bible was written as a literary work that is meant to be read like any other book. So thirdly, pay careful attention therefore to words, grammar, literary features, historical details. Uh, Actually pay attention to the text as you might a poem or a newspaper or a biography or any other kind of book that you might be reading. In other words, read the Bible literarily. A lot of people like to ask the question. You hear it on polls and surveys all the time. Do you believe the Bible should be read literally? Should it be read literally? Well, do you read poetry literally? Well, it depends on what you mean by the word literally. It's why it's a terrible word. No, metaphors are meant to be read as metaphors. Uh, you, you know, like you you, you are sweet to me, sweeter than honey. Uh, you know, are you actually likening this person that you're speaking to, to honey? That you are not only sweet, but you are sticky? And I'm talking, of, you know, like what? No, we don't speak or read poetry literally, but we do literarily. mean. we understand that the customary fashion with which poetry is read is by honoring metaphors as metaphors, and not treating Emily Dickinson in the same way that you might treat the Washington Post. You understand that there are two different genres. In other words, reading literarily means reading with sensitivity to literary genres. Uh, The Bible is full of all kinds of genres, history, story, poetry, narrative. And so we read some parts of the Bible differently than we might read other parts of the Bible. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but pay attention, therefore, to the different ways in which the Bible ought to be read. Principle number two. So first, read the Bible like any other book. Number two, start by letting the text speak for itself. Remember, the whole goal is to start in the then and there, and then move to the here and now. So we're just trying to, when we're observing, we're just trying to let the text speak for For itself. So don't rush in and immediately say, What does this passage mean to me? It's not all about you. If you are meeting a stranger from a different culture that's speaking a different language across the street from you, a new neighbor, as it were, and you speak with them, what do you do? You do a lot of listening, you are patient. You give them a lot of time to speak. You don't center yourself in the conversation. See, we do the same thing with the neighbor that is the Bible and the neighbors that we encounter in the Bible, as it were. You see, we're just simply being a good neighbor to the words of Scripture and to the characters that we encounter in Scripture. We're letting them speak on their own terms first. And we're giving them space not to crowd out the conversation just with my thoughts and myself. Be careful not to mix or confuse your observations with interpretations. Where you're immediately saying, well, I think I know what this means now. No, observation is a step that requires a lot of self-control and self-discipline. Where you're forcing yourself to stare at the text of Scripture And note the obvious and see what's really there in the words and the grammar and the text. Rather than immediately saying, well, I I know what it means and now this is what it means to me. No. Don't mix your observations with interpretations. In fact, it all starts here. So many wrong interpretations start with hasty or poor observations or no observations at all. You immediately just jump in and say, yeah, I think I know what that word means, and this is what it means to me, and so there we go, and let's apply it. A lot of wrong interpretations, and therefore, wrong or unhealthy applications start with faulty observation. This is important, as you know. Uh, observation and the struggle with good biblical observation began in the Garden of Eden. This is the story of the fall of humanity. What do I mean by that? Slightly facetiously, but it's true. When the serpent came to Eve in Genesis 3one we're told that now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve starts to say, Wait a minute, did he say that? Wait a minute, he did say that. And before you know it, she was wondering if God really loved her. If God was really going to take care of her, if God was really trustworthy, if she might need to take the place of God. And what was it that tripped her up as Satan approached her with this simple question? Did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree in the garden? Well, it was a problem of observation. Eve had forgotten whether if she had written it down or maybe if she'd seen it in her mind's eye, what the Lord actually has said to her, which if we look at Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, we find this, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. In other words, the moral history of the entirety of the human race turned on one word, the difference between any and every. Because Eve thought that God had said, or she believed that the serpent was right when he said that God said, you shall not eat of any tree. How miserly, this God, when in fact God said, you may surely eat of every tree, except for one, except for one. Observation of details can actually make a massive moral difference in your life. A massive difference in the way that you see and understand the character of God. It did for Eve. One word. One word for this. Observation matters. And so how can we do observation? Let's get practical. This is a method. Some steps that we might be able to take together. So, number one, read the passage several times carefully. Okay, if we're really committed to this idea of looking at all the features of that passage or that verse carefully and seeing it on its own terms, and that means we have to read it a couple times carefully. And that might mean reading at different speeds. You know, sometimes reading it for the forest, and so I just want to get a feel for where this passage is going. So you just read it kind of without the microscope, but rather with the window open so you can see the scenery. So you read it a little bit faster. But maybe the second time, you slow down a little bit and you decide I'm gonna read it this time uh, with a magnifying glass and I'm gonna you know, pay attention to the details, I'm gonna see some of the features of this text, you, you can read it several times but also at, with different speeds and with different degrees of zooming in and zooming out. As you're reading here of course take note of the literary genre of the passage, I have a, a little uh, handy tool for you in uh, the appendix in page 16 there just How do you know what you're reading and what genre it might be? Of course, this is something you've grown understanding as you become a more mature and skilled reader of the Bible. But in the beginning, you can just take some guesses based upon a tool like the one that you have there. But again, if you don't know you're reading poetry, you might accidentally read it like it's a historical narrative. Or if you don't know that it's meant to be read as history, you could wrongly be observing it if you think it's actually poetry. So take note of the genre that you're reading. And of course, if you're just a good reader in general, you'll be able to pick up a little bit on what the intentions are in that text. Thirdly, at this point, don't turn to any supplementary resources yet. Uh, So put away that online resource maybe that you've gotten in a good habit of using or maybe other study notes or maybe a commentary which you may or may not have and probably don't need necessarily, but hey, uh, not yet, not now. Observe on your own terms. Let yourself just see Scripture for what it says. Read the passage several times carefully. Secondly, ask lots of questions. Uh, interrogate the text. It's just a way to dig more deeply into what is actually there. So ask who, ask where. Ask what? Ask when? Ask why? Ask how? And maybe the most important question, huh? Ask that one too. Uh, Note the things that you don't understand, the things that are confusing to you, the things that maybe you want to follow up on later. Note those as well, because the best Bible readers are people that are simply curious about the text. You're digging because you wanna find out more and you wanna see things that you haven't seen. So ask lots of questions as you're digging into the text. Thirdly, get out a pen or a marker or a pencil and start scribbling all over the text. It might be a printout that you have, it might even be in, well, if this doesn't offend you, in your Bible itself, right, to go ahead and write in it. Circle or underline or emoji keywords or phrases. I'll explain that in a second, right? So circle words that are repeated because repetition oftentimes indicates what the main theme is in that given paragraph. What does the author keep on saying over and over again? One of the reasons why this is important is a lot of the works in the Bible were originally meant to be read out loud in the synagogue setting. They were written orally and meant to be delivered orally and not textually read in a sitting. And so repetition was a key way in the ancient world in which they really tried to get the point of cross. So pay attention to repetition and circle those words. Take, uh, pay attention to dominant images, like a big uh, symbol or metaphor or image that's used in a given passage. Pay attention to key words like conjunctions, a, a big fat therefore uh, 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 a, a, a in order that or so that a for a because these key words that show logical transitions and relationships uh, take note of the mood or the tone of the letter or of the story because that is part of the author's intention too how are we supposed to receive this in our hearts and so this is what I meant by emojis I like to put smiley faces next to passages that are meant to be received with joy, or frowning faces when I'm like, no, the author is pretty stern here. Just ways in which we can be picking up signals on the tone of the passage. And then of course, use question marks all over the place. Things that confuse you, things that you don't understand, things that you don't know, put question marks for you to follow up on. But the key here is mark up your text. Start to write all over it so that you can visually be processing the words and the details that you're encountering. And then finally, write down what you observed. Just a couple observations, it could be a sentence, just explaining what you saw, it could be a phrase, but where you're just starting to summarize a little bit of what you're seeing in this passage. Again and again and again, I wanna emphasize, don't overlook the obvious and the simple. The whole point of this observation step is to encounter the obvious and the simple because we need to deal with the text on its own terms, not our own. Right? Any questions about what I've gone over here? We're gonna do a quick exercise in a second, but any questions about the basic principles or method for this one step observation? All right, let's do this. Turn the page, page six and page seven. Uh, Page 7 has a little sheet that you can use. We're going to work through this in three stages throughout our time today. Observation, interpretation, application. But page 6 has the passage that we're going to look at together, which is Mark 12. Is that visible? Barely. Mark 12, verse 41 to 44. Can I have someone kindly stand up and read this out loud for us? This is what we're going to dig into together today. Stand up and read it. Someone? Yeah. I have one more person stand up and read? Because remember, we need to read this several times. Someone else? Yeah, Jim. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple prayer. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Hmm. Very small copper coin, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All that she had to live. All right. I love the, the dramatic quality with which our brother has read this passage. It's a good thing for you to, to do that, even as you read your, on your own, though at certain points, Jim may have been guilty of a little bit of eisegetical reading there, right? <laughs> uh, telling us how we ought to understand this passage. Um, all right, let's do this. Turn back to the passage, read it one more time on your own, and I'm just going to put up these questions. For the, I mean, sorry, this outline of the method that we just talked over, read the passage, ask lots of questions, who will remember how, huh, all that, circle, underline, emoji, keywords, phrases, conjunctions, repetition, blah, blah, blah. Write down what you observe, don't overlook the obvious and simple. There you have it. Are we going to do this? Should play some music or something, right? you don't have a worksheet, and you're feeling kind of sad about it, uh, let me actually put the passage here in front of you. If you can't see it, then I'm sorry. All right. So the truth is, this is a terrible way to do this exercise, because I'm rushing you. And the whole point of observation is just to sit and hang out with the text for a long, almost tedious amount of time. But for the sake of time, um, let's push forward. What I want to do is share a little bit of what it might have looked like for me or what it did look like for me to run through these steps and just to illustrate for you what it could look like for you. So getting out the ink pens. This is kind of honestly what it is sort of like when I prepare a sermon. Step one usually looks something like this uh, for me, and, but without the colors, probably. Um, But this is, just let me just walk through how you might have marked up your uh, text. So I'm just gonna ask a bunch of questions to myself as I'm reading this text, right? So let's just run through who. Well, who are the characters in this story? So the first two here, is Jesus and so I just put some underlines around Jesus and I notice his name shows up two times here. But then there's another character, corporate character in this story, not just Jesus, but there are crowds. Okay, Jesus apparently is interacting with some crowds and then thirdly I put a box around or a rectangle around this reference to rich people. Many rich people threw in large amounts and later on down in the bottom of the passage There's a reference to all the others. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others, and they all gave out of their wealth. I put a box around that because I think that's a reference to the rich people that Jesus saw earlier, but I'm not positive because it's not explicit in the text, and so I put some question marks next to that. And Then lastly, there's the poor widow who's sort of the star of this, as you can kind of start picking up as you read this. And just to distinguish her from the other characters, I put triangles around her. Could have been a circle or an octagon or whatever you want it to be. The poor widow, her name is mentioned twice as a poor widow, and she was referred to by the per- pronoun she uh, two other times. And so again, you can already see even visually, the poor widow is mentioned again and again and again. She must be the central figure in this story. That's the who. Oh, there's another who. The disciples, right? So in the second paragraph. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said. So apparently they were around Jesus and he called them together and he gave them this teaching that we find in the second paragraph there. Then, what? Question of what? We got all these characters. What did they do? What happened in this story? So Jesus, I circled, sat down. He did two things in this first sentence. First, he sat down and then he watched. And so I circled watched at the end of that first line. He sat down. Opposite the place where the offerings would be being put. So some, he was sitting across from where the offerings were, and then he was watching. From a seated position, he was watching who? The crowds. Okay, so see how this is slowing me down enough to start to picture in my head what is going on. So Jesus is crowd watching, and then he's watching the crowds do what? They're putting their money. Uh, I circled money there, and they're putting their money into the Temple Treasury, and I put a question mark there, because i was like, well, what exactly is a Temple Treasury? Is that a bank? Is that what, what is going on there? So a question mark there. Uh, then we, we moved on to the next group of people. So many rich people, what did they do? They threw in large amounts of money, apparently. So they threw in large, and I circled large, and if you remember Jim's reading, he really emphasized the word large, and I think rightly that stood out. But a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So rich people threw in large amounts. The poor widow put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Then moving down to the second paragraph, calling his disciples to him, Jesus I don't know if he was still sitting. Was he still sitting? Is he still across from the offering box? Or where is he? We don't know. But now he calls his disciples together and he starts talking to them. And he says, truly, I tell you. And I put a little squiggly line and I circled that and I wrote emphasis. Why? Because I guess I've read the Bible enough to know in the Gospels when Jesus says, truly, or truly, truly, or truly, I tell you he's usually about to emphasize a very important teaching. So now I know he's about to teach. And that's why I put on the brackets here. I think the bottom section here is Jesus' explanation about everything that's going on. The top is the action. The bottom is the explanation. I think that's a little bit of what might be going on. I'm going to move on from who and then what, and then I'm going to ask the question when and where. Uh, Well, where are they? Well, we saw that there are there's a reference to the temple treasury so maybe they're in the temple right now but I put an arrow to Matthew 12 the header there because I'm gonna say let's look back to the parts right before this paragraph so that we know we can look up what's going on before this where is Jesus right now because this passage doesn't tell us explicitly where he is Uh, when is this we also don't know from this passage itself Mark 12 it's towards the end of his ministry Apparently, he's in Jerusalem, but I don't know that just from this text, and so I also put that on the arrow to say, hey, look it up and read around Matthew 12, verse 41 to 44, to find some more interesting answers. Then I moved on to say, and I picked up a different colored pen, what are some interesting or key words that seem to stand out? So I asked the question about repetition. Are there any words that are repeated again and again in this passage? And one stood out to me, poor, poor, and poverty. Uh, you could say you could also maybe circle all the money-related words, but this in, in particular seemed to stand out: poor, poor, and poverty. So I wrote that word or that set of words also on the right side there. And then I also noticed another repetition: the two words but and but. So in verse 42, and then also in verse 44, I believe, if I'm seeing the numbers right, there's but, and that is a word of contrast or comparison. So. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but, so I put a box around it to say, okay, there's a shift here. There's a comparison, there's a contrast that's going on here, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. So in the action, there's a comparison between these two groups of people, a rich group of people and this poor widow. That's the comparison. And then another comparison on the bottom, when Jesus explains it, he's almost leveraging that same contrast comparison thing when he says, Truly, I tell you, this widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, they all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And so I want to say, well, what's the comparison then? Well, here I drew lines between the poor widow and the rich people. That's one comparison that's being drawn. And then the amounts that each of them gave, there's a large amount, and there's the only few cents, very small copper coins. In that first but cycle there and the second one but compares they all gave out of their wealth but she out of her poverty giving out of wealth giving out of poverty that's some comparison or contrast that's going on and so i circled more truly i tell you this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others because it feels like that's kind of what jesus is getting at what is the comparison he's saying she gave more I don't know what that means at this point, so I circle it, and I just move on, but it feels like that's the basic comparison that Jesus is drawing out in this passage. Lastly, I just riddled the whole thing with a bunch of circles, now with a purple pen, and put question marks next to any question that I had, including this question, second sentence, many rich people threw in large amounts. They threw that in. They just talked. Did they just throw it in? But then look, but a poor widow came and put in two very small, threw and put. Is that important or not? Is that actually something that matters or not? So I just put a question mark next to it because it's something we'll want to look into a little bit later. I put a question mark next to worth only a few cents. I don't know how much this copper point is. Maybe it doesn't really matter. We get the point. It was a very small amount. But that might be helpful to know what the value of that is. And then you see at the bottom here, I put my little emoji thing here. Jesus obviously is happy as he's talking about the widow. He's not frowning when he's talking. I don't get a sense of Jesus frowning throughout this entire passage, but maybe a little bit of surprise or maybe something. So that's the second face over there, an open mouth, right? Uh, He's sort of delighted, celebrating something that was unusual that he found in this widow. And lastly, he just wrote these words. It just feels like the overarching theme is touching on this topic of money and giving uh, the money, 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 wealthy, poor, poverty, out of wealth, out of poverty, right? So that's how I looked at that. Cool? And then these are the observations that I drew out. 21. Because remember, the idea is to really slow down and to take every little bit on its own terms. And some of these might seem so obvious, and that when you shake your head and say, oh, yeah, that was the assignment, right? So observation number one, Jesus sat down. Now, is that going to revolutionize your interpretation of this passage? Maybe, maybe not. But at least it's worth observing and noting that Jesus sat down. So that when you draw up a mental image of what he was, how long was he there? And did it actually help him to really focus intently and watch as he was people watching? But he wasn't doing it on the fly. He wasn't walking around. He wasn't reading the newspaper. He was sitting down. So he really was taking a look, wasn't he? Well, I don't know if it affects our interpretation, but at least we're going to say this is a legitimate observation. Jesus sat down. Number two, Jesus sat down across from or opposite the offering receptacle. Number three, Jesus watched the crowd putting their money in. I mean, this is just simple stuff, right? Isn't this obvious? Jesus watched people putting their money in. Number four, there were many rich people in the crowd. Number five, there was at least one poor widow in the crowd. Number six, many rich people threw in their offering. Again, don't know what to do with that, but I just put that in there. The rich people gave large amounts. Uh, Number eight, Mark compares and contrasts the rich people and the poor widow, right? We talked about the but and the comparison. between. So we're just noting, observing. There's a comparison going on here. A poor widow came. Another obvious thing. First, a poor widow came. And then she gave, right? A poor widow put in her offering, number 10. Number 11, the poor widow's offering was two very small copper coins. The poor widow's coins were worth only a few cents. Number 13, Jesus calls his disciples to him. Number 14, Jesus explains to his disciples what he observed. So I didn't even explain what he observed. I just said he explained it, right? That's an observation. Uh, Number 15, Jesus said the poor widow put in more than all the others. 16, Jesus gave emphasis to his observation. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said all the others gave out of their wealth. No, we're going to have to explore what that means, but we're not interpreting yet. We're just observing Jesus just said all the others gave out of their wealth, and then he compared and contrasted the poor widow with the others with this word, but he said the widow gave out of her poverty. He said the widow gave everything. He said the widow gave all she had to live on. That's what a list of observations might look like. I'm going to open it up for questions, but just to make sure we just take one more step in understanding what an observation is, here's a little not a quiz, an exercise. Let me put these before you. Three statements. There was only one poor widow in the crowd. Number two, Jesus delights in the poor. Number three, Jesus criticized the rich people for not giving enough. Which of these are weak or poor observations? Tell me. Talk, talk to me out loud. Oh, smarty pants, all three of them. Pick one. <laughs> what, uh, if, if you're... Gonna uh, uh, raise your hand and then say which one and then explain why. Did the text actually say anything that indicated that Jesus was criticizing the rich people for what they were giving? say what what leads you to think he he does. What if I said um this side of the room? Um this side of the room uh, I'm come up with a good example. Um this side of the room um eight. Um, hamburgers for dinner. But this side of the room, no. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just answer and respond to it. I don't know that the comparison necessarily um, leads us to observe that Jesus is criticizing those that are giving out of their wealth He is contrasting the two, but for us to start to conclude what value he's placing on each of those is to interpret and to conclude beyond what the text actually says. How do we know that Jesus means that giving out of your wealth is bad? What is it that tells us that giving out of your wealth is bad? What we do know is he's saying something about the poor widow giving more, perhaps better, but is there anything in the text that makes him say makes us conclude so far, based on the observations, that Jesus is saying giving out of your wealth is bad? So we'll just leave that at that. I think that's the test of observations, right? Other thoughts? Yeah, go for it. I'm not sure number two is actually there either. Okay. Because it's Too, too far away, he's like taking it into a categorical statement. Good. Categorical statement is a good word because Jesus maybe can't stand the poor, but this one stood out. <laughs> right? I mean, this passage only tells us about his response to one woman and one woman only. Again, I'm not saying it's not true of Jesus that he delights in the poor, but how do you know that? from all the other things you have read in the Bible about how Jesus relates to the poor, but not from this passage. It's one instance, one data point, one interaction, and that's all we conclude at this observational stage. Any other thoughts? So if someone says number two is no good, someone says number three is no good, how about number one? Anyone wanna <laughs> pick a fight with number one? A little too strong. little too strong? What'd you say, Chris? What do you mean there's only one in the story? Yeah, but it doesn't say that like another woman from the crowd was in the comment. Oh, there's only one that he was pointing out that he commended. The passage does not say there weren't 500 poor widows in the crowd. It only says that Jesus leapt for joy when he saw this one. It does say there were many rich people. It didn't say there were only rich people either, you know. You see, this is what observation helps us to do, to slow down enough to see exactly what's in the text and no more. Yes? make the argument that if all the others, they all gave out of their wealth, all must have some wealth? Unless all refers to the category of the rich people that he was looking at. He said all the others. All the others among the rich people that he was looking at, possibly. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know that all the others necessarily need to encompass every human being in the temple precincts. But when he says all the others, he's obviously making a comparison between the rich people, because he says they gave out of their wealth, and the poor widow, perhaps. Last comment here, and we're going to take a break. All right, just for the sake of, like, right? Yes. You're talking about putting yourself in the tent. Yes. Yes. Alongside him, this woman, were you just pointing to her from a distance? Uh, Just contextualizing the fact that, right, usually men and women weren't together at that time, so how would he have pointed attention to her specifically at that time? Yeah, we'll see this in a second because the offering receptacle in the first century was in the court of women. Let's take a five minute break and we'll be back in five minutes. lived 2,000 years ago in the Mediterranean region, in the ancient Near East, what did he have in mind? What did the original audience hear when this letter was written, when it was read by them? So of course, what that means is we're looking for the meaning of unfamiliar words. Uh, So if there's a word that you don't understand, so for example, I said temple treasury. Well, that's not very clear to me. Um, or the value of the monetary unit that was used in that passage, but actually translated for us. What's the meaning of unfamiliar words? What's the significance of actions or images or the logical argument that you find in the passage? What's the significance of the character doing this or that? Why is that important? Uh, what what's sort of the historical or cultural background? Uh, to this passage or to that action or to that thing. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John 13, what does that mean? Uh, what was involved in foot washing? Yeah,. Come. So the the question is when your Bibles have little footnotes and it says, you know, there could be one or two alternate translations to this word, you have to understand the translators, the scholars that uh, did this work, and so for example, the English Standard Version, the ESV Bible, uh, which is uh, often used in our circles, that had a translational team of over 100 people, uh, scholars, top-notch scholars that put their minds together to figure this out by consensus. Generally, those footnotes are only put in there if it is really important, not just, hey, we could kind of, so it's a close tie, or there's another angle to the word that legitimately could uh, be um, factored in as you're reading that passage. So take it and read it. Uh, That's not just one person saying, well, this could have an alternate meaning. Um, If it's printed in your Bible, they take that pretty seriously. Historical cultural background. So look for what the author and the original audience had in mind. Second principle very very important the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so if you were with us the last two weeks as Glenn talked about the formation of the canon and Pastor Russ talked about the authority and inspiration of the Bible. This is a foundational conviction that we have about the Bible and that is this there's a common author. Across the entirety of the Bible. And his name is God the Holy Spirit. So because God has inspired the entirety of the Bible, then that means we can use one part of the Bible to help us understand and interpret another part of the Bible. And we can also understand that it will never contradict itself. Someone says, well, there's a big assumption. Well, of course, we all have them. And we can talk about them but we're assuming based upon the theology that you heard the last two weeks that the Bible would never logically contradict itself, which doesn't mean that it doesn't have mysteries or logical tensions or things that are hard to formulate with the human mind. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity, God being one being with three persons, how does that all fit together? But for face value, the Bible will never logically contradict itself. It will also invite us to therefore interpret Unclear parts of scripture or indirect Themes or teachings of scripture or implicit things To interpret those things in light of the clear the direct and the explicit So if you're not sure about what this means and it's kind of fuzzy to you You can you may you must turn to other parts of the Bible that maybe are clear or more direct to help you understand the meaning of this passage. It's what is often called cross-referencing, uh, to see how the different parts of the Bible relate to one another. Uh, theologians call this principle, the best interpreter of Scripture, Scripture itself, often call that the analogy of Scripture, if you want to know the formal name of this principle, the analogy of Scripture. So again, we should generally allow letters, which are the most direct didactic teaching material that we have in the Bible, help let that help clarify less clear parts of the Bible like poetry or the book of Revelation or even narratives like the one that we are reading. The best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. So for example, you have a passage like John 15, seven, which raises a question, is every prayer that comes out of your mouth absolutely uttered? Every prayer that's uttered answered in every case, and so Jesus says here ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you Uh, Which almost sounds like I can say you know God made chocolate ice cream appear on this table right here right now And God did not answer Jesus broke his promise, right? It looks on the surface like Jesus is saying you can ask anything whatever and Jesus promises to answer it, but we can turn to other parts of Scripture to help us fill out a better understanding of what Jesus meant. So John 1, uh, 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So now this adds a little bit of well, anything, but you can't ask God to do evil and then expect that he will answer that but you also may not know what the hidden will that God might have for the next few moments of your life are, and if you're contradicting that, then he's not gonna answer that as well. So we need to ask according to his will, but James four tells us this, when you ask you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So that helps us to know, well, it's not just ask whatever you want, but the motives of your heart, asking with faith actually matters. You see, I'm just giving you an example of the analogy of scripture that we can use clear other parts of Scripture to help us interpret what might otherwise be unclear or ambiguous statements in the Bible. Third principle is simply this, context is king, context is king. Uh, We know this word, of course, we know the complaint, you're taking my words out of context, of course we do this with the Bible all the time, God has that complaint towards us. Context, if you take apart the English word, it means with the text, right? You want to see words and phrases and statements within within the setting of what is being said all around that given word or phrase. And so we understand that the meaning of ambiguous words or ideas are best clarified within the literary unit. So, for example, some of the dialogue that we were having earlier in terms of trying to clarify some of the observations, uh, well, right over here when we were saying, you know, when... when Jesus was saying, referring to all the people. Was Did he mean all the people in the temple or did he mean the rich people where we were looking within the context of the passage to give us clues? Well, Jesus had just referred to rich people, so is that what he meant by all? Or he's in the temple, so when he said all, did he really mean all? Or did he mean the whole human race? The literal local context in that paragraph and those two paragraphs help us understand the meaning of that word all. Many interpretative errors start with disregard of the immediate context. And so let me give you a classic example, Philippians 4:13, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is a favorite phrase for weightlifters and bodybuilders and athletes to get tattooed onto their arms because it, Jesus promises you're going to win. You're going to win, right? Isn't that what this is about? It's not... I I don't mean to poo-poo the sentiment, and I think it actually encourages a lot of people in really great ways. But this is an example of a verse that is all too often taken out of its context. So what is the fuller context of the immediate sort of sentences that, uh, that Paul was writing when he finally uttered that last sentence, which is so often quoted? This is what he said. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me just ask you, what then does Paul mean when he says, I can do all things? How does the context help us to understand that key phrase, all things? Tell me. I can maintain my faith. I can maintain my faith in spite of my circumstances. I receive grace from God whether I have plenty or I have nothing, whether I'm in a season of suffering or a season of abundance. I can find a secret of contentment. That is the strength that he's talking about. That is the all things context that Paul is paying attention to here. Okay, look for what the author and audience had in mind. The best best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. Context is king. Fourthly, every passage must be viewed in the light of Jesus. Jesus is the center of the Bible, and therefore he's in every He's the center of every story in the Bible. He said it himself, Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. And the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, which was written fifteen hundred years before Jesus was born, and the prophets and the Psalms, which don't always sound like they're talking about Jesus, Jesus says they're all about me. The challenge is to figure out in what way. Galatians 3 says, The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, and there he's Talking about the way in which the law, the moral law of God, that shows us our inability to save ourselves, our inability to love perfectly in a way that would be acceptable to God, makes us fall to our knees and cry out to the grace of Jesus to say, "You must be my Savior, or I die." The law of God helps us to see Jesus, to need, see our need for Jesus. Colossians two says of all the Old Testament ceremonial laws, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, are found in Christ. Christ was the true fulfillment of all the images and pictures that were set forth in the sacrifices, in the rituals, in the washings. Jesus is the center of all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy in parts of Numbers. Jesus is at the center of the Bible in every story of the Bible. Everything in the Bible is predictive of, preparatory for, reflective of, resultant of, or a response to the work of Jesus. And so when we interpret then we have to always interpret every passage in light of the person of Jesus. How does this relate to Jesus, some aspect of his character, some aspect of his cross and resurrection? That's an interpretative task for us as well. So, let's talk about a method. I'm Gonna run through, I I think it's six quick steps, and then we're gonna do a a quick exercise of just looking at uh, this passage again. So number one, review your observations. So go back, look at your observations, and now we're starting to ask, so what? What's the big deal? How do these things start to relate to each other? So what does this add to the meaning of the whole? What does this add to the meaning of the whole, So this image or this word or this conjunction or this comparison, what, what does it add to the meaning of the whole? Or why this word or image or this piece of logic or this historical feature? Maybe it doesn't actually add anything. Maybe it doesn't have any significance. But you're posing that question about how these words relate to the meaning of the passage. How are these things connected? Whether if it's this statement and that statement, how are these connected, cause and effect, or something like that, or this action and that action, or this statement Jesus makes and another statement. How are these things connected? What is the truth that is revealed here? You're starting to dig a little bit more, relate things to each other, and ask, so what? What difference does it make? Number two, interpret the parts and the whole of the passage in context. So again, context is king, so what does that mean? Look at the surrounding context of your passage, so read the paragraph immediately before and after your passage to see what else is going on, to see how it might help your understanding of your text. Look at the immediate surrounding context, but also look at what you might call the biblical context, the entirety of the Bible. Or a tricky technical word, the redemptive historical context. And let me explain what that is by posing two questions. You're asking, has the dawning of Jesus reframed the meaning of this passage in any way? Is, is, is what was going on here in Leviticus different now that Jesus has arrived? Or what was happening in the book of Mark different now that Jesus has died and risen again? So we're, we're trying to see this passage in the scope of all that happens in the Bible. A second question, does the passage reflect something that was unique to that particular time in the history of God's redemption? Unique meaning in Israel, in the ancient Near East, in a way that doesn't necessarily directly apply to us here and now. But that's the question that we're raising by seeing how that passage fits into the redemptive historical context of what God was doing throughout the history of the Bible. So interpret the parts and the whole of the passage in context. Number three, investigate any unclear words or details. So words that you don't get or that aren't clear to you, look, you can look them up or find some resource that can help clarify what that means. So how can you do that? Well, do you need to know ancient Greek and Hebrew? The answer is no. There are so many resources and helps for you that don't require you to have technical knowledge. You can turn to your pastors or other trained people for that kind of help if you'd like to, but here's one way that you can get at meaning of words. Compare different translations. Right, you've got different teams of translators that have faithfully worked at Rendering an ancient text in the best most readable most accurate sort of way for a modern English reader That's what we have in our Bibles, but they have arrived at different conclusions sometimes comparing them can help bring out Oh, maybe that's actually not a significant thing or maybe those words mean different things or you can just start to see some differences I'll show you an example in just a second. You can also investigate by looking up an article in a Bible encyclopedia for cultural or historical or geographic backgrounds. And so if the Bible mentions Bethel in the Old Testament, you're like, well what well, tell me about the city Bethel? Like what what what's going on with that city? Does it matter for our text? So you go, and I have some online resources for you in your appendix, you'll see it there. You can go online, click on Bethel, and it'll tell you a little bit about the history of that city and why it matters to the Bible. And then you can decide, does that matter to this text? And how does it shape the meaning of this paragraph? or passage. Check a, thirdly, check a study Bible's notes for general commentary, and this is what I wanna say. Most all of you, the main resource that you need for in-depth study of the Bible is what is called a study Bible. Here are two examples here, and you're welcome to look at these um, after our time together. What it has is the text of scripture on top. In every book of the Bible, there is an introduction to that book that gives you basically a Cliff Notes cheat sheet on what that book is all about. Because sometimes knowing what it's all about helps you read it, so you know what it's all about. Giving you a little bit of background and history. There are maps, and here's gold. Underneath, there are notes for any words that the editors decided are hard or need more explanation. So you don't need to go Googling everything. Or buying a thousand books or commentaries, maybe, not in every case, but maybe a study Bible thought that word or phrase needed explanation in the way that might be helpful to you. Again, I'll give you some examples. What I want to encourage you to do is to invest in a study Bible, and again, you have some uh, suggestions in the back of your uh, packet there, um, as a primary study tool for you as you are learning to read and interpret the Bible. So. Investigate any unclear words or details. Start drawing tentative conclusions. Number four. Start drawing tentative conclusions. Write down statements of interpretation. Summarize the passage in your own words. Start to actually draw things together. And start coming to an understanding of the passage. And as you do that. Number five. Consider also how the passage relates to the person and work of Jesus. Remember. Remember. Every passage relates to Jesus in some fashion. So as you are starting to make conclusions about the meaning of this passage, you have to at some point raise a question, how does Jesus tie in here? So consider how does a passage or the theme predict the coming of Jesus or prepare us to receive Jesus, showing us our sin or our need for him, or reflect the work of Jesus. Sort of illustrating his character, his nature, or his redemption. Or result from the work of Jesus. A a motive to our obedience or showing us how to love or live. All these different ways in which Jesus can figure into every passage or story or teaching that we find. Another way to ask the question a little bit more negatively is this. How would this passage read differently or be received differently if the gospel were not true. You see, because if you end up interpreting that paragraph or that passage in a way that does not require the cross and resurrection of Jesus in order to be lived or in order to be true, then you have interpreted it totally divorced from the gospel. Uh, Jesus must be essential to the basic meaning of that passage for it to be biblical. How would this passage read or be received differently if the gospel weren't true? Too many, too many of our um, interpretations of the Bible um, are so lacking the cross and resurrection of Jesus, even implicitly, uh, that a person um, lacking Christian faith in its entirety could agree with our interpretation. Um, or a person of Mormon faith or of um, other secular humanist philosophical beliefs, worldviews uh, would be- agree with what we're saying. Our interpretations must be distinctly gospel and Christ centered. What does that look like? Lastly, find your conclusions by considering what of the Bible, what Ooh, You know what that should say? What other parts, I think that's a fill in the blank too, right? Considering what other parts of the Bible say say (laughs) about the main themes or topics in your passage. This is based on that idea of the analogy of Scripture, right? Uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. So look around and find other ways that the Bible comments on the same topic. For this, you can use a Bible concordance. So... If you have a study Bible and you flip to the back, there are pages and pages of words, just like a dictionary, that say here. The word malice is found in Romans 1.29, Ephesians 4.31, Colossians 3.8, and 1 Peter 2.1. The word legion is found in Mark 5.9. The word light, too many passages to read, right? So a concordance gives you a word a topic and tells you where in the Bible you can find it. So it's a cross-referencing tool. So in our passage, if you want to know, well, what else does the Bible say about money and giving, and do my interpretative conclusions square with that, or am I saying something that's totally out of the pages of the Bible, a concordance can help you leverage the analogy of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture best, in order that you might have a coherent, and true interpretation of your passage. Let me throw out a couple of examples of how these resources can be used, and then I'm going to give you a few minutes uh, to take a look at your interpretation. So, surrounding context. Remember I said, look at the surrounding context. Well, if you were to look up here, this is from BibleGateway.com, Mark 12, starting at verse 38, the paragraph right before our paragraph about this widow and Jesus sitting in the temple and talking to his disciples about how she gave and da-da-da-da-da. This is what is the paragraph right before. What does Mark tell us about? As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. Hu- wid- Interesting. Widows. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers these men will be punished most severely. And so just to wrap it up quickly in a nutshell here, the paragraph before is emphasizing this theme of the lust for outward honor, outward status, outward recognition, outward value, outward wealth, and the exploitation of widows. And then Mark goes into Jesus talking about this poor widow who gives... In this way that is not impressive, not showy, not honorable by any observable person's evaluation of that gift that she gave. And yet Jesus says she gave more than anyone else. How does that help us to understand the meaning of this passage? Let me give you a few other tidbits. tidbits. Comparing translations. I said sometimes that will help you understand words. I don't know if you can see it, but remember I... Underline the word through because our translation said the rich people came in and threw their money, and then the widow came in and she put in their money. Well, if you were to put side by side, as you can do in Biblegateway.com, the translation that we use on the left side, NIV, and the ESV translation, and you look closely at how this reads, the second sentence here, many people, many rich people put in large sums, huh? and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. So the ESV doesn't translate those words differently and actually seems to indicate that that's the same word for whatever reason, maybe you don't need to know, the NIV translated it differently, through and put, but it looks like that word through maybe is not that significant. Maybe this comparison of translation leads me to believe don't build an entire interpretation of this passage on that one word, because a hundred scholars decided that it should be put and not through, and so you're on shaky ground if you build your whole Christian identity on the word through. Okay? <laughs> Another example, study Bible, study notes, Bible encyclopedia. So the NIV study Bible that we have here says this about the widow's offering, the treasury was located in the court of women, I mentioned that earlier, and contained 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for mandatory tithes and voluntary gifts. That's what was going on there. I had a question about the coins. What's the meaning of those coins? Small copper coins, the smallest coins in circulation worth less than 100 of a denarius. Let me read for you what this other study Bible says about it. I just want to illustrate for you the rich stuff that you can get just from this one resource. What this tells us about the widow's offering is this. Small copper coins. Greek lepta. A lepton was a Jewish coin worth about 1 128th of a denarius, which was a day's wage for a labor valued at a fraction of a cent. So 1, 128 of the average worker, think about whatever that value might be, uh, 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 the wage for a day. And then it says this also, the poor widow gave more than all the rich people according to God's evaluation, for she gave everything she had while the rich gave from their surplus. Interesting. Let me push this on forward here. Oh no, no more resources. Just wanted to give you a couple examples there. Go for it. Turn back to the passage And see if you might be able to draw out some interpretation. Just give you a few minutes there. Again, look at the context. Just gave you some help on any unclear words or details. Start drawing some conclusions. Write down statements. Consider how the passage relates to Jesus. All right, that too was super duper short. But let me just ask you to volunteer. In a nutshell, if you could summarize the meaning of this passage in one sentence or a fragment, (laughs) what would you say? What what is this passage getting at, guys? Yes? It's better to give uh, in a sacrificial way than out of one surplus. Okay, better to give... Sacrificial way than out of one's surplus. Others? I'm going to call on you. (laughs) 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 Looking down. I won't call on you. Anyone else? Uh, It's better to be reliant upon God. He he calls out that, um, that not just that she didn't have much and she gave a lot, but that it left her with all. With nothing. It was all she had. To yeah, it's all that she had, So it left her with nothing. So apparently so Steve is drawing up the interpretation that she was relying on God. She was left in a position of depending upon God and I think Steve is implying that there's something commendable about that that Jesus was getting at. Walter, did you have a thought in that? Uh, you know, what we value Huh. Where And where are you getting that from, Walter? You know, he's just sitting there. I mean, I'm Jesus just sitting there and watching everybody and, you know, somebody puts in this giant, something Let me, let me illustrate for you something that I did in working through this interpretation piece just to try to think through a little bit um, more about this basic contrast that Jesus was making between the rich people and this poor widow. And this whole word that he uses, which it felt like a central statement that Jesus was making, that she gave more. She gave more than the others. Now, in what world did she give more when she gave a couple pennies And they gave their stock options, right? I mean really, in what world, according to what metric did she give more? So I started just jotting this down and I created two columns just to work out this compare and contrast. More, what does that mean? Question mark, question mark, question mark, right? On the left side here, just put rich and the right side, poor. And Jesus, or Mark tells us, that the rich came in and they gave a large amount, and the poor widow gave a, he said, a very small amount and only a few cents, right? So he's using small words, tiny value. In that regard, she is not giving more. The actual monetary value of the gifts, no question, the rich people were giving more. So Jesus is subverting that in some way, right? Well, what exactly does he mean? I was just thinking out this idea and was looking at the other parts of the contrast. Jesus says, the rich people gave out of their wealth, where she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything, all that she had. Steve was getting at this. And so there's something about the way in which she just threw all of herself. She gave up her whole life, even, which was a moreness behind her offering, she gave more of herself, she gave more of her heart, she gave more of her life, and so I have here, then are we saying, does, that, does more equal devotion, does more equal heart, faith, love, this inward quality, is that what Jesus is getting at? I think so, some of you touched on that. But then I wanted to keep on pushing at it a little bit more, and started comparing, well, okay, let's just put some numbers to this just to think through a little bit of what Jesus might be getting at. Let's say the rich people gave a large amount, a hundred units of whatever, just they gave a hundred, but they were very wealthy. Jesus says they gave out of their wealth. So let's say they're worth 10,000 whatevers, which means they gave 1%. They gave a lot, it was a hundred thingies, but it was out of 10,000 that they had, so it was 1%, but she gave. Very small, only a few, much less than the rich. But she gave not only out of her poverty, but she gave everything that she had. So let's say she gave one, and all she had was one, which is 100%. I've discovered another more. Percentage. There's a sense in which she was sacrificing more and giving even more of her possessions than they were. Jesus said she gave more than anybody and we know literally that is true. She actually did give more of all that she had than the other rich people had. Which led me to think, well, maybe then more, when Jesus says she gave more, maybe he means not only heart devotion, but the second thing that got cut off and now you'll never know what it is. Um, (laughs) Sacrificiality. Sacrifice. The whole life, whole heart. Devotion of faith and love and the degree to which we're giving out a sacrifice, which also is tied in with dependence and faith and love. So this is what I came up with for tentative conclusion interpretations. Um, number one, this is a minor one, but I wanted to throw it in there. Number one, Jesus notices how much people give, Sitting there, watching. Um, do what you want with that. Number two. <laughs> Jesus speaks of our offerings as an outward expression of the inward devotion of the heart, faith and love, and he prioritizes the latter. He speaks of our offerings as an outward expression of the inward devotion of the heart, and he prioritizes the devotion of the heart. Thirdly, Jesus considers our giving relative to how much we have, not the absolute amount, He considers our giving relative to how much we have, not the absolute amount, which is another way of saying Jesus celebrates sacrificial giving. But let me tell you one interpretation that I did not arrive at the conclusion of, which is this Jesus does not care how much you give. Right? Because he did not say the widow gave nothing and she did a great job. He said her gift showed her heart. Her gift showed her heart, it was a concrete expression of an inner reality that showed real sacrifice because number three, right, Jesus considers our giving relative to how much we have, not the absolute amount, he considers sacrifice worth celebrating. In fact, he does in a sense care about how much. But only because it's a barometer of a deeper reality. And I am making this point because I used to kind of simplistically take this passage and say what this means is Jesus cares about your heart, not your amount. And I don't know that this passage teaches us that. Wrestle with it. Interpret it. Lastly, like, it is possible to be poor and to like Jesus with your gifts. There's a wonderful conclusion coming about in this passage. Okay. Let me run through applications then quickly. We've got to finish up in a little bit here. We're going to do this quickly, and I want to give you some time for application. Talking about me now. Finally, finally. (laughs) Observation, interpretation, application. We have not been doing eisegesis. We have not been moving from here and now to then and there. We have faithfully started with the text. Let it speak on its own terms. Put the pieces together arrived at some interpretations, now it's time to apply. Remember, the aim of application is now to respond to the passage, benefiting from it personally. Respond to the passage. Not just know what it means, that's not the goal. The Bible is intended to change you. It's designed to change you. The key question then is not just what does the passage say, that's observation, what does the passage mean, which is interpretation, but now how does the passage relate to me or us personally? So general principles, number one. Do you remember what the principle number one for observation was? Read the Bible like any other book, right? Because it was written as a book, a real literary human work that we should read, not looking for a, a special voodoo code or whatever. New principle here, read the Bible like no other book because it is like no other book. Because it has a mixed character, right? A mixed nature. It is not only a book, but it is actually God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, inspired by God. It is the very words of God. As Martin Luther says, the second quote here, the Bible is not merely to be repeated or known in the head, but to be lived and felt. That's why application is so important. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you've observed and you've interpreted if you have not applied. Practically speaking, this is the most important step of the three steps. It's just you can't get there unless you go through the first two. Read the Bible like no other book. It is the very Word of God. We must obey it. We must submit ourselves to it. We must align our lives to it. Number two, application should be grounded in and guided by your interpretation of the passage grounded in and guided by your interpretation of the passage. So, shape applications according to the way that the passage would have been originally applied to the original audience. So, of course, we can apply it in a lot of different ways, but we do need to start first by saying, how was the this passage applied to the ancient readers? So, let me give you one example just from last Sunday. Those of you that were at Grace Meridian Hill, you know, no, not last Sunday, two Sundays ago. You know I preached on first Corinthians, the first half of the chapter dealing with divisions in the church. And there are so many different kinds of divisions in the church. But what was the specific type of division that the Corinthian church was facing? Divisions based on factions of people that were following specific leaders. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow whoever. But of course there are more divisions in the church than just that. But what I tried to do, and I don't expect you to remember this, But what I tried to do in the sermon was, based on this principle, was apply it first along the lines of divisions based on leaders. Because that was the original application of that passage. So first and foremost, how does the grace of God help us to heal divisions or keep us from dividing ourselves based upon, hey, I follow that guy and I follow that pastor and Russ is my favorite preacher and we kill that because we all follow Christ even though that's true, right? Right. <laughs> and then after that I said, but of course there are other kinds of divisions. Racial divisions and gender divisions and political divisions. And we can talk about those as well, but the first application is the original application and then we go from there. There's an important discipline about that so that we don't just stray and make every passage about everything. If there are no clear direct applications in the text, then you can apply broader principles and themes that you've derived from the process of interpretation that we just went through. So if there's no clear, direct application, then you can use principles and themes from your interpretation. Thirdly, different literary genres apply to us differently. We don't have time to go through this in de- in detail. If I were to teach a 201 intermediate class after this, what it would entail is actually taking each genre and talking about unique ways that you can interpret poetry? How do you read the book of Psalms? And what are some additional principles and methods for reading the Psalms well? Or reading Proverbs well? Or reading the Gospels well? Or reading the book of, for goodness sakes, how do you read the book of Revelation, right? This is an issue of literary genre because I've been teaching tonight general principles, but of course there are specific sub-principles for each literary genre. So in our applications, narratives tell us what other people did but they don't always tell us what to do. So we need to extract underlying principles, right? Discourse passages like epistles, letters, teaching, they do tell us in general what to do, but we still need to decide the specifics of the application. What does this mean in my life? Poetry paints pictures. It doesn't always command, but there are sometimes some commands that we can follow, but generally we need to, again, extract principles of application out of these evocative, descriptive images that we find in the poetry. Proverbs are general principles for how life works best or how life generally works. They're not always universal moral laws, but some of them are. So they're all different ways in which we apply different genres. How do we do this then? method really quickly? And then I'm just gonna take questions. Reread or interpretative conclusions. Um, Number two, consider what you have in common with those to whom, the audience, about whom, the subject, or by whom the author, the author, the passage was written. And so what I mean by this, what do you have in common? So again, we're trying to start with how that passage would have been applied to the original readers. Well, what do you have in common with the original readers and the original people in the story? So just to use our passage, I wrote down these three things. We too, like... The people in Mark 12, we have opportunity to give financially to God. Okay, so that brings us pretty close to what Jesus is talking about in, Matthew, in Mark 12. Our community consists of varying levels of wealth and poverty. Okay, so he's talking about rich people, poor people, and how we can understand our giving. So that economic diversity is something that also connects with us as well. Our own financial circumstances can vary. Sometimes we can be, have more abundance, and sometimes we can lack more, so even the compare and contrast between rich and poor actually can apply to us at the same time depending on your circumstances. So hey, it looks like we have a lot in common here. We have, a, we have more permission, even mandate, to apply this passage fairly directly. Write down your applications. Be as specific and personal as possible. The more personal you are, the more specific and concrete you are, the more your life will change because of the word of God. And finally, do it obey. I mean, not do it like right figure out your... I mean, follow through, respond to God's word, let it change your life, apply faith, believe the promises of God, all these ways in which you need to follow through with what you've now encountered in God's word, instead of just closing the book and saying, well, that was really great, I'm glad I know a little bit more now, right? Okay, so let me give you an example of what I came up with uh, for possible applications. Number one, we could sit and watch how much people give. No, 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 no. Although I will note what this passage does tell us is that a knowledge of how much we give is not as immoral as we like to think it is. Because Jesus was sinless and he saw, granted he's God, and he knew, but it's an interesting little thing there. But no, let's not apply that. Sit and watch and peer into how much people give. No. Number two, uh, real number one, Uh, Jesus notices what I give. Jesus notices what I give. He looks at my gifts. When he looks at my gifts, what does he see about my heart? That's one way that I'm applying this. When he looks at my gifts, what does that tell him about my heart, about my love, about my faith, about my devotion? I should give, number three, I should give sacrificially to the Lord. I should give sacrificially to the Lord. I, I try to pose this as a question to define what sacrificially means. What can I not do because I joyfully gave to the Lord? Because if I can do everything I ever wanted to do, then I'm probably not actually sacrificing. Sacrificing means giving something up. The widow gave everything. She had her one, she gave her one, so she couldn't do that one, spend that one. So what can I not do because I joyfully gave to the Lord as a test? of how I can grow in sacrificial giving. Number four, Jesus put everything, his very life, to save me. Jesus is the true widow, as it were, right? He's the one that dove in to the receptacle. In fact, he dove onto the cross, gave everything, his own life. So I need to, practical application, I need to spend more time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning pressing the gospel into my heart in order that my giving will be pure joy. Uh, How do I actually think about the work of Christ in a way that actually directly impacts how I give my offering. Number five, Jesus celebrates sacrificial giving of the poor, right? We saw that as an interpretative conclusion. Jesus celebrates the sacrificial giving of his poor widow. Does our church celebrate only the giving of the wealthy? Or do we also celebrate the sacrificial giving of the poor, which is by definition less noticeable? Do we celebrate that as well? That's what I came up with with for a final corporate, communal application. What would you come up with, right? What are the ways that you would apply this passage? All right, that's it guys. What questions do you have? I didn't leave a lot of time for questions. But about how to do this, why we do it this way, um, burning questions, I'll just, we're, we're already at our closing time, but let's just, if you don't mind, Open it up to just a few short minutes of questions. Yeah, Chris. When I was looking at everything you wrote on the interpretations, yeah. and I asked myself, could I come to this conclusion if the gospel weren't true? My answer for all of them was yes. So I was wondering, <laughs> how does that stuff work? Because I feel like we didn't need to. Yeah, I didn't really weave it in for the sake of time. Thanks for outing me on that. Uh, <laughs> for that. Um, Yeah, so that's the most important thing. We didn't get to really work through that. I don't know that it's true, though, that those things are possible apart from the gospel. I think we might take for granted when push comes to shove, true sacrificial giving of the kind that the widow performs. It's not to say it's not seen outside of a Christian context, but generally speaking, Laying down your life in that way, wholehearted giving, and with joy, requires some inner realities, some spiritual power and freedom in order to do it. She had it, apparently that was a rarity in that temple, and I think it really is a rarity even today. So I I, I appreciate that that comment, and I didn't help elucidate that very well, Um, but I do think it requires more grace than maybe it might seem. Cool, other, yes? So the question is, how much much of our interpretation is impacted by the fact that we're sinners? The answer is, a lot. Which is why, this bottom line here, we need to be praying throughout. Praying for the help of God. Praying specifically for this. God, remove the blinders. Remove my resistance. I I know I'm not going to want to see something that I don't like. Help me to see it and then help me to receive it. That this is a spiritual battle every time you open up the Bible. And guys, if you are only reading the same parts of the Bible over and over again, some of that might be because that's as far as you've gotten in your growth in reading, and so I don't mean to uh, critique that. But if you like to go to just the same places over and over again, and if you haven't encountered something that's been hard for you in a while, it might be because you're resisting Right? It might be because you don't want to hear something that's going to turn your world upside down or tell you that, well, in this passage, maybe we need to live with more sacrificiality. Something like that. So sin is definitely in there. The key thing is repenting and humbling ourselves before that. But I think secondly, Russ touched on this briefly last year. This is why it's important to read and study the Bible in the community. Because we need other people to call us out when we're conveniently putting on the blinders so that we're not encountering things that are uncomfortable for us. We need to read in a context where people will be able to challenge us or will help bring out things that we're not seeing or people from other kinds of backgrounds are being able to bring out observations and interpretations and then apply it in a fresh way that challenges me because in my own room, in the quiet of my own Bible reading, I never would have seen that or never would have come up with that. So that's like communal Bible reading is so, so, so important. Other questions? Classic. Um, in terms of, like, our society and uh, some of the divisive situations that we have going on, um, it, feel, it seems as though that could all be talked up to the interpretations of scriptures. And so um, what are we, how do we. Right, so the question is, because you know, in the divisive age, and I'll take this as the last question, uh, in the divisive age that we currently live in, and even among Christians, where there's so many different interpretations and disagreements, how are we to handle that? How are we to respond to that? Um, I think one of the important objectives of learning a methodology like this is that we might grow in our confidence, not just in our interpretations, but the possibility that good interpretation of Scripture can be had which I really believe is one of the crises of the modern American church right now, where we've just sort of given up, that we can actually confidently read scripture and say this is what's true and that is not. So if a person has a bad interpretation of scripture, we need to know how to do this well enough to know that it's bad and know why it's bad because you know what eisegesis now is and you know that scripture interprets scripture and you know that you need to see the plain meaning of the word and you know that it's right to understand the historical context of a given phrase or custom so that you can apply it to the fuller meaning meaning of it, right? So you have these principles, you're you're armed now, no, that's not a good illustration because we're not just fighting, right? but you're resourced in a way that actually helps you engage hard questions. I think one of the important things in this though is knowing uh, what are priority, primary concerns, what are secondary, what are tertiary, Uh, because sometimes there are gonna be differences of interpretation that are not central to the Christian life or to the Christian gospel, and that should not at all separate us in our fellowship and should not necessarily be something that we're like sticking it to another person or whatever. Um, But if there is something that's primary, if it's of a person that has a public platform influencing many, it's what the Bible would call false teachers, there is a way in which the church is called to give that individual accountability. Which doesn't always mean all of us need to in every way, but depending on the circumstances and depending upon the issue at stake, in that false or erroneous interpretation. Uh, There are ways in which we can figure out, is, is this that or is this something I can let go of? This person might be, is this person wrong or are we just disagreeing on something that really is not super duper clear in scripture? Part of growing in wisdom in our Bible reading is to learn to interpret with such discipline and confidence that we know even the difference between those things. Some of the most charitable people that can get along with people, that don't believe exactly the same thing in every way, actually can do so because they know exactly where they stand, not because they're willing to accept everything, because they know where I'm anchored is a primary thing, the gospel, the primary trees of the word of God, everything else I can be charitable about, everything else I can still embrace and fellowship across people that might differ with me on this, this, and this, but this over here, no. I'm certain that this is what the Bible is saying about this matter. So I think that's one of the goals of maturity in our reading of Scripture and our knowledge of the truth. We're out of time. I'll be here as we're cleaning up. Happy to um, field any personal questions that you might have. Thank you for staying a little bit late. we cruised through a lot of material here, but thank you so much, guys. And God bless you as you read the Bible. Let me say a quick word of prayer. Jesus, we simply pray that you would bless our reading and our study of your word. You tell us that your word is life. You tell us that your word is water to our souls. You tell us your word is like a sword piercing our hearts. Let your word be all those things to us, even this week, because of the fruit from this time together and learning how to study and read your word. So Jesus, come and bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.